The following message was recorded at Fountain of Life Fellowship in Fountain Valley, California. For more information, please go to www.folfcrc.com. All right, we are going to finish 1 Corinthians this morning. It always feels like a major accomplishment to finish, to finish a book in the Bible. And uh, at first glance, it might seem like Paul is just kind of crossing off a to-do list. What do you notice in here? Um, earlier, he talked about his travel schedule. Today, he mentioned some people that we don't know who they are. Um, tells everybody, everybody else says hello. So you might think, maybe you're wondering, is there anything in this passage for me? Did anybody wonder that? Um, what's going on here? But the more we think about this, I think there's some huge things in here for us because we're seeing pictures of what early Christians valued. We're seeing snapshots of what early Christians cared about. And it's remarkable because the values that are in this passage are so different than the culture that surrounded them. These people were unique. Um, These people had a part in why the church grew so quickly. They had new values that were different. So we just want to remember what happened to them. Why are they so different? And what were these values that had them standing out? So I'm going to call what we see in here today like snapshots. You're not going to see huge doctrines opened up by Paul, but you're going to see snapshots, little, little pictures about the church and what made them different and some of what they valued. So here's what I want to ask you to do as we walk through this today. Uh, if you've been to this church for very long, you're not going to hear anything in this passage that's brand new. It's basics. But how many of you would, how many of, you would admit that there's some room to grow in the basics? That's, a, that's what this is most of the time, right? Most of the time you're like, yeah, I knew that, but I need to be fresh again. I need to practice it more. I need my passion in it to grow. I need to be reminded. I need to be encouraged. So I want you to try to taste again and enjoy again what God has done for you. And then I want you to try to see the snapshots of the values that are in God's people. When, when Jesus grabs hold of somebody, what values does he plant in them? As you see the snapshot of this church, I want you to also see a picture of yourself. And then just pray, just ask the Lord, Lord, give me a greater taste for what you've done for me and let what you value in your church be things that I actually value. Because here's the thing, you have a set of values, don't you? You have things that you love and you care about and part of the, the fun and then part of the frustration is we tend to value different things, right? You notice that? Our values come out this time of year, it's political season, Don't you see what people value and how they value them? It's almost strange to see two people you love, good friends on both sides of the spectrum and and to see how those values that people have are different. We see our values in our relationships. We see them in our priorities. Where did we get these things? Some of them, we got them from our families, the way our parents were. Uh, we've, we've, We've received them from our experiences our personality differences, some it's from our study, our thinking, and probably more than we'd like to admit, we receive our values from the culture around us. Uh, you realize that more and more as you, as you travel a little bit. People see the world differently. So, so here's the question. You become a Christian, shouldn't that do something to your values? It should. And, and what should it do? What kind of values should you have? You're going to see some of that here 
this morning. So we're going to do four parts. What happened to us, and then the three values that grow in us. So let's begin. So we'll start with verse 15. Paul says, now I urge you. Then what does he call everybody? Brothers. So common in the New Testament, Christians call one another. The Greek word is adelphoi, and it really means family. It's brothers and sisters. I urge you, brothers. So let's go over some of the basics that echo just out of this little phrase and questions that arise from it. You know, it's good to ask questions when you're trying to study the Bible. You should always do that. You should be a skeptic. You should ask questions. You should be curious. What's going on? Why does Paul call the church in Corinth brothers? Let's rule some things out. Did his dad just have tons of kids? And they all moved miles and miles away to Corinth. And so they're literally his brothers and sisters. Well, no, that's, that's silly. What about this one? Are they all Jewish? Paul's a Jew. So a lot of times your ethnicity is very important to you, right? You consider your ethnicity your family. So are these his brothers and sisters because they're Jews like he is? Nope. Why does he call this church of mostly Gentile folks, why does he call them brothers and sisters? It reminds us of some major things, um, the, ma- the most important things we believe, the things that loom over this book. And there, there are two realities that loom over this whole letter, and that is the cross and the resurrection of Jesus. The cross and the resurrection of Jesus dominate this letter. Look what Paul said back in chapter 1, verse 23, 23 and 24. Paul said, but we preach, what do we preach? Christ crucified. Our Messiah came and he died on a cross. A stumbling block to Jews and folly to Gentiles, but to those who are called, both the Jews and the Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. So we see here at least uh, a lot of the world looks at the cross of Jesus and they say, it's either shameful, right? Um, Muslims see this as shameful. Jews see this as shameful. That, the, that a prophet, that a Messiah would come and die on a cross is unthinkable because that's too ugly. It's too dirty. It's too awful. God wouldn't put any of his prophets through that. It's, it's, a, it's a stumbling block. I can't believe that. Or to the Gentile word, it's just foolishness. It's silly. Seriously? You need somebody to die for you? What's going on here? So the, so the world looks at the cross of Jesus and they say, it's either shameful or it's stupid. We don't want any part of it. But something's different for both Jews and Gentiles who've come to see who Jesus is. What is the cross for us? Those who are called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ the what? The power of God. Christ the wisdom of God. How's the cross the power of God for you? Do you see that? Is it powerful? Well, it reminds us of our, great, of our greatest problem. My greatest problem, your greatest problem, is we've sinned. We have rebelled against God. We've rebelled against his law. We haven't kept it anywhere close to the way he wants us to. And we are, in all honesty, deserving of his judgment, of his justice, of his wrath. If I was to stand before a holy God just based on what I've said, it would be the end for me. Let's be honest. What does the cross do for me there? Jesus paid for my sins, every one, all of them, the stuff I'm ashamed of, the stuff I don't want you to know of, the stuff I forgot about, the stuff I don't think is that bad. Jesus paid for my sins. He made me right with God. He loved me even though I was undeserving. And that's God's power to make somebody who has no right to be with God 
to bring somebody into God's presence through the cross by faith in what Jesus has done. It's the power of God. How's the cross the wisdom of God? Does the cross give you wisdom? It does in a million ways. I was tempted to go through lists of how the cross guides our lives. I'll just give you one thing here today. Um, You know what I need and you know what you need? So badly, from God and from one another. I need your grace. I need it in my marriage. I need my wife to love me when I don't deserve it because a lot of times I don't deserve it. She needs it from me. She needs my grace. I need your grace when I mess up that you show compassion, you'd love me anyway. You, you need my grace. We need grace from one another. We need love we don't deserve. Love we don't deserve. This world doggy dog, you can have it if you deserve it. And then we'll leave each other when you don't deserve it, when you don't meet the standard. But the cross gives me grace where I don't deserve it at all, but Jesus loves me. Like I'm perfect, makes me righteous. What can that do for the way I treat others? Grace. We could love one another even when we're unlovely, when we're unlovable, when we believe differently, when we feel differently. Grace. The gospel is the wisdom of God. Gives us grace. That's the cross. The second thing that looms over this letter is the resurrection. We've spent the last couple months on 1 Corinthians 15 and how huge the resurrection is. Look what Paul wrote in 1 Corinthians 15, 3 to 4. I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures, that he was buried, and on the third day, he was what? He was raised. He rose from the dead. This is everything. It's a power for what we believe. Christ's resurrection proves he is who he is, and he's done what he's done, and it gives us new life as well, right? We're going to live forever. Does it help you to know when you're facing cancer, you're going to get up again? After the cancer beats you, whenever it does, hopefully it won't beat any of you for many years. But we're all going down sometime, right? How do we face that? We're going to get up again. He rose. We will rise. We'll have new life forever. Not only that, the Bible tells us his resurrection gives us new life now. We have courage and confidence now. We know God now. Eternal life starts now. We have new life in God And the bottom line is this. So these two things loom over this letter, the cross and the resurrection. And through the cross and the resurrection, something has happened to you when you believe this. Do you know what it is? Again, we're looking at this phrase. Now I urge you, brothers and sisters. The question, how did we become brothers and sisters when we have different ethnicities, we have different uh, values, we have different experiences? What is it that makes us family? Through the cross and the resurrection, we've been adopted. I've been adopted by God. And so if God is my father through Christ, again, what, what was the way I came to God? As a, how, how did he adopt me? Was it with how smart I was? Everybody in here is like, nope. <laughs> was, it how, was it how moral I am? Wrong again, okay? So my political view, is that what gets me into heaven? No. How successful I am? Nope, okay? I was a good person. No, faith in Christ alone through his death and resurrection makes me God's beloved child. Isn't that just amazing? It's good news. And if that's true for me, guess who else it's true for? Yeah, which means God's my father, God's your father. Well, what's that make us? We're family. Brothers and sisters, whether we like it or not, 
In fact, that's the new value, is that you'd start to like it. Is that you'd start to like it, that the unity we have in Christ would overrule every other disagreement, every other distinction. I want to give you a quote from a theologian named J.I. Packer comparing justification and adoption. These are two different words that looking about how Jesus has saved us. Okay? Justification, God makes you righteous instantly by faith. Adoption, God brings you into his family as your child. It's a lengthy quote, but I love how he compares these two and highlights the beauty of the adoption we have in Christ. So I'll try to read it slow, slowly, let you um, suck it in. This is from J.I. Packer. He says, Adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers. Higher even than justification. That justification by which we mean God's forgiveness of the past together with his acceptance for the future is the primary and fundamental blessing of the gospel is not in question. So he's saying justification's primary. To continue, justification is the primary blessing because it meets our primary spiritual need. We all stand by nature under God's judgment. His law condemns us, guilt gnaws at us, making us restless, miserable, and in our lucid moments, afraid. We have no peace in ourselves because we have not peace with our maker. So we need the forgiveness of our sins and assurance of a restored relationship with God more than we need anything else in the world. And this the gospel offers us before it offers us anything else. And as justification is the primary blessing, so it is the fundamental blessing in the sense that everything else in our salvation assumes it and rests upon it, adoption included. But this is not to say that justification is the highest blessing of the gospel. Adoption is higher because of the richer relationship with God that it involves. Justification is a forensic idea, conceived in terms of law and viewing God as a judge. Adoption is a family idea, conceived in terms of love and viewing God as father. In adoption, God takes us into his family and fellowship and establishes us as his children and heirs. Closeness, affection, and generosity are at the heart of the relationship. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is a greater. Amen. I urge you, brothers, hey, we're family, because we've been adopted through Jesus Christ, through his death and resurrection. I knew many of you already knew that. Let's savor it again. It's great to be forgiven. Oh, I need that. It's great to be forgiven. But to be loved as God's child. That his love for you is stronger and greater than your love uh, for your children if you have a child. Wow. That's what changed them. That's what made these Christians so different is that they didn't have to earn God's love they didn't have to perform to get it. Jesus tells us the honest truth. You can never earn it, and you don't need to. I earned it for you. So I want to ask you, 
have you trusted the gospel? And have you enjoyed and received the reality that God is your Father through Christ? Do you know that love? If you do, these next values will begin to emerge in you. So we've read, Paul said, now I urge you, brothers, uh, we're changed, right? We're family through Christ. I urge you, brothers. Okay, what is he urging? What does it mean to urge someone? Yeah, I really want you to do something. Please, there's some passion to it, right? Please, you need to do this. I urge you, what is he urging? Well, first let's look at the backstory. Follow me, verse 15. Urge you, brothers, you know that the household of Stephanus were the first converts in Achaia, and now they've devoted themselves to the service of the saints. Okay, so what does this mean? Household of Stephanus. Whole family seemed to convert. Also, churches would meet in the house, something like that, group of people. What happened to them? Well, they're the first converts in Achaia, some city. So they trusted Christ, right? They converted. They repented of their sins. They trusted their lives to the one who died and rose. And what did they do after that? Did you notice? It's like a domino falling. I trusted in Jesus. Then they devoted themselves to something. What was it? The service of the saints. Instantly, what are, they, what are they giving their lives to? Other Christians, to encourage them, to bless them, to help them, to serve them, to build them up. There's another backstory as well. Look at verse 17. I rejoice at the coming of Stephanus and Fortunatus. How many of you are going to name your kid Fortunatus after reading this passage? Achaicus. I rejoice at their coming because they made up for your ad- absence. They refreshed my spirit as well as yours. One thing that shocks me about the Apostle Paul, read the book of Acts, is what he will risk to visit and encourage other Christians. He, I mean, I just, I just got to travel to Honduras, which was a great blessing. Now, aren't you amazed at modern travel? You, you sit in a plane, people bring you drinks, watch a couple movies, and you're in a different world. We got to travel with five kids. Now, in my totally unobjective opinion, I have the five best kids in the universe, and they did a great job. It still wears me out to travel with. <laughs> it wears me out. Little Zeke, especially, one and a half is not a great age for plane rides, you know? Wore me out. And I'm thinking of Paul. It's dangerous to travel in the first century. A little wooden boat or something, miles and miles of walking, crime on the streets. I mean... Not only that, people wanted to kill him. The things he would risk, not just to mention the inconveniences he would go through, to bless and encourage other Christians. So he rejoices when these guys come visit him. They made up for your absence. The whole church couldn't come, but these representatives came as well. They refreshed my spirit. So, so these men made a sacrifice to go and refresh and bless and encourage the apostle. So you got two groups of people. You've seen the stories? Hey, I urge you. Urge us what, Paul? Well, listen, the household of Stephanus, they converted. And what did they do? They devoted themselves to serving others. Hey, and these guys, the three amigos, they, they worked hard to get to me and, and refresh me. That's the backstory. And what does Paul say for the church? How should they respond to these groups of people? Look at verse 16. What does he say? You tell me. 
be subject to such as these, and to every fellow worker and laborer. This is not a submission of the kind of, uh, of the positional submission, right? If somebody's a king, you need to honor and submit to their position. That's a biblical thing. We always want to submit appropriately to authority. This isn't like that because it's, it's for anybody who is of this way, of this bent. So, so what's he saying? What is this quality in them that he's pointing out? They devoted themselves to the service of the saints. And then Paul says, be subject to these people. And what he means here is respect these people, honor these people, value this, value selfless service. This is everything to us, respect it. It was the same thing with the fellows that visited Paul. Look at verse 18. He mentions these men that came to visit him. In verse 18 he says, give recognition to such people. Deep respect. So I want to ask you right now, who are your heroes? What do you value? You know, in Corinthian culture, they had this thing called the patronage system. Commentators write about it. So the rich would give to those who had less power or less money, but the whole motive of it was just to increase their power and to be recognized and to be praised. To be owed was the deal. I will give this to you, and now you owe me even more, and I control you even more. It was a selfish giving, a selfish giving. And, and, and the, 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 those who became Christians were totally different than that because it became a selfless giving, a selfless devotion for others, that's what we should value. That's not what our culture is telling us to value. Our culture wants us to value domination, power, celebrity. Have you noticed some of the celebrities and, and wondered why they are heroes? What have they done that is valuable? For a Christian, all that, all that stuff has to get washed it has to get cleansed. If you're a Christian, you value selfless service, and your heroes are those who live that way. Why do you think this is? Well, look at Mark 10, verse 45. This is what Jesus said about himself. For even the Son of Man came, what? Not to be served, but to serve, and give his life as a ransom for many. If you're a Christian, it's because Jesus served you selflessly. And he tells his followers to do the same. To be a selfless servant. What do Christians value? Selfless service. Do you value selfless service? And I find this to be a test for my heart. I value it when other people serve me selflessly. Um, have you ever been in a place where somebody's getting recognized and you felt a little bit of itch hoping you'd be recognized too? Come on, yeah. And have you ever felt dis disappointment when somebody else got recognized and you didn't? It's amazing how my selfless service can become selfish as I serve selflessly for recognition. <laughs> I think it's in all of us. Uh, why aren't you noticing me for my totally selfless service? Can we go over that selfless part again? 
So here's where this text, it confronts me. I think it confronts all of us. There should be two priorities in this value. Number one, for yourself, for yourself, what should you do? Work, pray, work to serve selflessly. But there's also recognition in this passage. So who should we work to recognize? Others. So here's how the value works. I try and pray to serve selflessly because I know the Lord sees it, and I work towards recognizing others who have served. You see that? Recognize people like this. So today I want to recognize Cinti, Sally, Gail, and Norm for how they have served people who are in great need, driving them to doctor visits, providing for their needs, that's service. The Bible says recognize such as these. So I want to recognize Habib, because when I ask him to lead worship, it's hard to lead worship if you, if you don't know this. It takes a lot of preparation. He does it every time. I want to recognize Stuart, because when we did the church job fairs, he came two nights to move chairs. And if there's ever a selfless service, it's moving the stinking chairs. <laughs> uh, there's so many more I could and should mention, but I'm not going to. Some of it because you would all hate me if I mention your name in public. Um, but here's where I want the rest of you to help me. This is what we're supposed to value. So today after the service, later this week, if you have seen or smelled any selfless, selfless service, I want you to recognize that person. Smelled. <laughs> smelled selfless service. It has a smell. It smells good. If you've seen it or smelled it, I want you to recognize it. So after the service today, go recognize somebody for their selfless service. Send them an email, write them a note. Will you do this? Because this is supposed to be a value for us because of who Jesus is. You see this value here. And what a great culture this makes, doesn't it? The more we valued it. And we already know we're supposed to serve one another. We already know that. But to value it, to enjoy it, to have this be, who's your hero? So people who offer selfless service, that's it, it's Christ-like. Another thing we value, look at verses 19 to 24. Now these just make me chuckle. Honestly. The churches of Asia send you greetings. Aquila and Prisca, together with the church in their house, send you hearty greetings. Whoa, greetings. Oh, and in, all, in fact, verse 20, all the brothers send you greetings. Kiss each other for me. Holy kiss. My love be with you all in Christ Jesus. He loves these people. Amen. Uh, did you notice something in these three verses? Greet, 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 kiss. So I want you all to pucker up and lean. I'm just, I'm kidding. I'm kidding. But I do think holy kiss wraps this up. Here's why. Holy kiss. First of all, obviously kiss, ancient Near Eastern way to greet people. If you travel certain countries, it still happens, okay? So it's a way, a culturally appropriate way to greet people, but it's holy. Greet one another with holy kiss. Holy, what does that word mean? Set apart for something special, for something valuable. Here's the point. You have been set apart to God. You are holy to him. You're precious to him. You're valuable to him. And so am I, because I'm in Christ. And so if we're precious to God, guess what, we, guess what we should be to one another? 
precious. So greet one another like you're precious to one another in ways that are culturally appropriate. So you don't need to be, don't, you don't need to be kissing me after the service, all right? But uh, yeah, I know, what a relief. But it is so, it, isn't this easy for this value to get flat? Come on, you get tired, you're a little depressed, you're a little annoyed with other people. Whatever comes in, you're like, eh, what's up? Okay, you don't take it, you don't take the value of what it means for brothers and sisters to meet together. It should, this should be a constant value for us. How often, how consistently are you precious to God? Is he, is he ever not excited for you to come into his presence? No. His, his value of you is faithful. So a value for us then is to, is to value one another that way. Greet one another warmly. So some people say, why do, you, why do you greet each other in the service? Well, it's just a teeny little way to put something like this into practice. Hey, I'm glad to see you. But of course, it shouldn't just be in that couple minutes in the service. It should be all the time. Do you know what it means to be Christians together? I think the persecuted church and the poor church has a better taste of this than maybe we do. We have more in common with one another in Christ than anybody else does, even if we have nothing else in common but Christ. I have more in common with somebody who's from a different culture, different, different political persuasion, different place in life, different anything. If they love Christ, and so do I, a person's holy to me. They should be holy to me. I should be holy to them. Let the gospel ring out, saved by grace, through faith, alone, in Christ. If anybody trusts Christ, boy, they just, let's greet one another that way. We're on the same team. We're going to be roommates in heaven forever. <laughs> Praise the Lord, we'll be glorified by then so we won't rub each other the wrong way so much. Greet one another. So what's our, listen, we've been adopted. We're children of God. First value, selfless service. Second value, Love one another warmly. Love one another warmly. Last value, verses 22 to 23. This is some strange language, shocking language. Look at verse 22. If anyone has no love for the Lord, let him be accursed. Whoa. <laughs> Just pulled out, hey, I like these guys, selfless service, and these other people, hey, they greet you, high fives, we love it. No love for the Lord, let him be accursed. And it just lands like this. A bombshell. Whoa. What's going on? What's going on? A couple things on what I know this is not. Do you think this is a harsh, self-righteous attack on those who aren't believers? Is that what Paul's doing? Ah, to, to hell with them all. Is that the way he lives? These Christians in Corinth are Christians because Paul sacrificed everything to come and tell them the gospel. He loves non-believers. He'll die for them. In fact, he will actually die for them. He says in another letter, I'll do anything I can to save anybody who I can. This is not a self-righteous attack on those who aren't believers. Also, do you think this is revenge? Oh, you don't love Jesus? I have the right to treat you like a curse is on you. Is that what this is? Revenge? Where you can dis demean people? No way. This curse is not like a Harry Potter, ha-ha, curse. This is God's justice on someone. 
The point here is this is not something Paul does. This is something God will do when Jesus comes back. It's God's judgment. This is how I think this works. I have two beautiful daughters whom I love more than life. And I love being their father. I love it. And I remember hearing a specific story once of how a father had abandoned his daughter. And it just appalled me. It upset me. I was angry. I don't think it was self-righteous. I'm just, how can this be, right? I remember thinking, that man has no idea what is valuable in life. God gave him a daughter. What an honor. And he sold it off for nothing. He has no idea what's valuable. What did he trade her for? A lack of responsibility? or uh, What's he doing? Let him be accursed. I, don't you want justice for something like that someday, somehow? God will bring it. Here's what Paul is saying. Remember that there are people in this church who have accepted Christ and are doing some horrid, horrid things. And Paul is saying, he seems to be saying, I don't understand how you could see who Jesus is and see what he's done and taste just a shred of it and then leave it and rebel against it and walk all over it. I don't see how you can do that. And when Jesus comes back, he's gonna make it right. That's what he's saying. But the point is, for Paul to say this, are you seeing what he values most of all? Who does Paul love? He loves Jesus. He loves Jesus so passionately so passionately that for somebody else to see Jesus and then leave Jesus is just, the, the Greek word is anathema. It's unspeakable. Really in the Bible, isn't this the unforgivable sin? <laughs> to turn away and stay away from Jesus and what he's done? Any other thing could be forgiven. You know that, right? Any other thing can and has be forgiven. You trust Christ, what will he not forgive you? But to look at Jesus and say, no thanks, I don't want it. I don't want the greatest gift ever given by anyone. I don't want the most glorious, the most beautiful one. I don't want the cross. I don't want his resurrection. Well, the next line Paul says is, our Lord, come. Maranatha, come, Lord Jesus. Come, Lord Jesus. When Jesus comes in his glorified state, when we see him, won't anyone who hasn't loved him be ashamed? Won't those who have loved him say, oh, I should have loved him more and I love him more now? The highest value for any Christian is a passionate love for Jesus. So I want to make a few things clear. I don't think, I know, we're not saved by our love for Jesus because who has loved him in the way that he deserves? I'm never, I'm not close. You're saved by what Jesus has done for you. But inevitably, if you trust Jesus, you'll love him, won't you? You'll love him more than anything. 
The Gospels are full of this language. Jesus says, and I don't have a slide for this, but Jesus says, um, basically, if you don't love your father and your mother more than me, you're not, or if you do love your father and mother more than me, you're not worthy of me. If you love anything more than me, you're not worthy of me. It says it in Luke 14. If you love your own life more than me, you're not worthy to be my disciple. Do you love Jesus like that? My honest heart is I love him, but not enough. I need to love him more. And so this next phrase, our Lord, come, 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 is one way kind of to test that, Lord, that love. Are you excited for Jesus to come back? Do you want to see him? Do you want, do you want to be with him? That's the ultimate value. So we've seen snapshots. When you trust Jesus, you become a child of God, adopted. And these three values, there are more, of course, but these three grow in you. We value selfless service. We value, we love one another warmly, and we have a passionate love for Jesus. So as you see these snapshots in this text, now look at a snapshot of yourself. And remember, you're not saved by doing any of these perfectly. You're saved through trust in Christ. He's the only one who did anything perfectly. Trust him. He died for your sins. He rose from the dead. But if you trust him, no, you're... You're a loved child of God. God's adopted you. And pray and work. Pray and work. Which is it? It's both. Pray and work that you would more value and do these values. That we would be a church more and more that values selfless service. That loves one another warmly. And that most of all, everybody see, man, these people love Jesus. They love him. So I'm going to pray for us. Then we'll take up our offering. After that, we'll put all this together with the Lord's Supper. We'll remember how he, the Lord Jesus, has valued us and given his life for us. And we will show that we value him. We'll eat that bread. and It's like trusting that his body was broken for us. We'll drink that juice and remember his blood was shed to make us right with God. Let's pray. Father, I ask you that We'd be able to see the beauty of what it means that you've adopted us through Christ. And I ask you that by your Holy Spirit, we would live this out more vigorously, more passionately. We'd be amazed by your love for us, and we respond with love for you. And Lord, that these values would grow in our hearts. We pray, God, that we would be a church that values selfless service, that we'd want to serve for your glory, Lord, not for our own recognition and that we would love to recognize others who do that. Lord, I pray that we would be filled with warm love for one another, no matter the annoyances or the differences that we have. We would love one another in Christ, and I pray most of all, Jesus, that you would be our greatest passion, that we would love you more than anything else, um, that we would just be hungry to be near you, to be pleasing to you, and that we would anticipate with great joy that you're coming back. Pray this in Jesus' name, amen.